section of Redemption Through Sin by Gershom Sholem. I don't know how everybody is finding uh, this essay and Sholem uh, in particular. He is somewhat long-winded and circumlocutionary at times. Uh, he writes long sentences in long paragraphs and it's a long essay, but, and it's a little on the dry side. It's kind of the academic style of sort of the mid 20th century, which of course is the, his time, uh, which I actually prefer uh, a fair amount to contemporary academic uh, trends and style. He's not though without the occasional literary turn of phrase uh, and he's definitely insightful and there's something about the contrast between the rather sober academic approach and kind of the extreme and paradoxical material that he's working with that I do think is appealing if you agree and you like that kind of thing there's a lot of Shola material, of course, but I would also recommend uh, Hans Jonas's book on the Gnostics, which is really good, too. Um, but we're getting to the section dealing with the Frankists, so things should get really exciting. So let's get into it. Jacob Frank, 1726 to 91 will always be remembered as one of the most frightening phenomena in the whole of Jewish history. A religious leader who, whether for purely self-interested motives or otherwise, was in all his actions a truly corrupt and degenerate individual. Indeed, it might be plausibly argued that in order to completely exhaust its seemingly endless potential for the contradictory and the unexpected, the Shabbatian movement was in need of just such a strong man, a man who could snuff out its last inner lights and pervert whatever will to truth and goodness was still to be found in the maze-like ruins of the believer's souls. Even if one is willing to concede that the doctrine of the sacred sin, the mitzvah haba'ah ba'avra, was not lacking in certain insights, 
there could be no question but that these were thoroughly debased upon coming in contact with the person of Frank. But just as the believers had deliberately chosen to follow that dangerous path along which nothing is impossible, so it was perhaps precisely this that attracted them to Frank. For here was a man who was not afraid to push on to the very end, to take the final step into the abyss, to drain the cup of desolation and destruction to the lees until the last bit of holiness had been made into a mockery. His admirers, who themselves fell, fall short of him in respect of this ability, were won over by his intrepidness, which neither fear of God nor the terrors of the bottomless pit were able to daunt, and saw in him the type of the true saint, a new Shabbatai Tzvi and an incarnate God. If the full truth be told, however, even after one has taken into account Frank's unscrupulous opportunism, his calculated deceits, and his personal ambitions, none of which really concerns us here, he remains a figure of tremendous if satanic power. True, neither the promises and pledges with which he allured his disciples, nor his visionary schemes for the future that was to follow the general cataclysm of the times seem particularly impressive today, although his territorialist program, it may at least be said that besides revealing his own lust for power, it expressed a bizarre yet unmistakable manner, the desire of his followers for a reconstruction of Jewish national and even economic existence, and yet for all the negativism of his teachings, they nonetheless contained a genuine creed of life. There's a footnote after economic existence, which has this motif repeated many times in the sayings of the Lord. Uh, and that's the, the one collection of uh, Frank's sayings that we have. It first occurs in a letter addressed by the Frankists to the king and bishop of Lvov in 1759. Back to the main text. Frank was a nihilist, and his nihilism possessed a rare authenticity. Certainly its primitive ferocity is frightening to behold. Certainly, too, Frank himself was not only an unlettered man, but boasted continually of his own lack of culture. But in spite of all this, and here is the significant point, we are confronted in his person with the extraordinary spectacle of a powerful and tyrannical soul living in the middle of the 18th century and yet immersed entirely in a mythological world of its own making. Out of the ideas of Shabbatianism, a movement in which he was apparently raised and educated, Frank was able to weave a complete myth of religious nihilism. This surely is worthy of attention. It definitely is. Something very 20th century about it, I would say. And by the way, just as an aside, if you have not yet listened to the first Grasshoppers episode, that's probably a prerequisite for this section. Uh, the very end of it, I deal hopefully fairly succinctly with uh, the history and the doctrine of the Frankist movement. And I do connect that uh, to certain themes and ideas running through um, late 20th and early, early 21st century uh, culture. Frank was not an original speculative thinker, but he did have a decided talent for the pithy the strikingly illustrative and the concretely symbolic expression. 
despite their nihilistic content, his sayings in the sayings of the Lord are not very different in form from those of many famous Hasidic Zadokim. Uh, this probably deserves a little asterisk here as well. The idea of the Zadokim is, uh, <clears throat> uh, the word just means righteous, and it's kind of, I guess, analogous to uh, a saint. Um, there's a there's a particular mystical interpretation of that, though. There's this idea that there are uh, 36 anonymous Tadakim righteous uh, people who uh, it is for their sake alone that the world is not destroyed. You actually find an analogous idea uh, in Buddhism, too, that there are these uh, you know, monks out there meditating on a mountain or something like that, and it's... Uh, it's these few who are actually uh, somehow supporting the world. But anyway. And for all his despotic nature, he possessed a hidden poetic impulse, which appears all the more surprising in the light of his customary savagery. Even Krauschar, who, like his predecessors, was intent on emphasizing everything that seemed incoherent or grotesque in Frank's recorded sayings, was forced to admit that on occasion... They show vigor and imagination. Actually, it kind of sounds like Manson, in a way. For my own part, I fail to see how any sensitive individual who reads the many excerpts published by Krauschar from the sayings of the Lord with a degree of understanding, something which it is far from impossible to do, can contemplate them without emotion. But how many have even troubled to make the effort? Footnote. Frank's sayings were never published in Hebrew because the Hebrew translation of the second volume of Krauschar's history, in which they appear, was prevented from going to press at the last minute by the news of Krauschar's conversion to Catholicism, which shocked the Jewish public. I am deeply indebted to my friend Miss Hadassah Goldgart Tel Aviv for furnishing me with an exact version of the original Polish text. Main text now. Frank was particularly gifted at the creation of new images and symbols, and in spite of its popular coloration, his language is full of mystical overtones. Of the terminology of the Kabbalah, he rarely made use, at times even criticizing the Shabbatian sectarians in Podolia for their continuing absorption in Kabbalistic ideas, which he called madness. That's funny. Um... Looking at the Shabbatine episode in the history of Judaism, it was this kind of ca catastrophe which brought for a time after it had been uh, somewhat popularized by Isaac Luria, after Shabbatite Tzvi's apostasy, uh, we discussed this in relation to Jacob Ebenton, and Jonathan Ibeschutz, uh, Kabbalah came into somewhat of disrepute. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me the relation that Kabbalah has to uh, mainline, orthodox, whatever you want to call it, Judaism. Um, it's not entirely, it's, it's not heretical in the way that something like Gnosticism is in relation to Catholicism or other branches of Christianity. Um, and some of it, as far as I can tell, is even attained the status of canon, but it's sort of viewed as potentially dangerous. And this is the and the 
Shabbatian movement is one reason for this and in the years after it. Uh, and Sholem starts out the essay talking about this, how there's sort of a conspiracy of silence against this. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. But there were some rabbis who were very serious uh, anti-Kabbalists. They sort of blamed uh, the Shabbatian episode on the influence of Kabbalah and basically said that, uh, that it's no good. Um, they were hunting Shabbatians, but they were also um, uh, say, you know, there was a basically kind of a war between Talmud and Kabbalah. I guess you could consider it sort of a compromise, the rule that emerged that uh, one wasn't supposed to study Kabbalah at all unless they were a male aged 40 at least. And also there's a split between, uh, I believe it's called contemplative or theoretical, whatever you want, and practical Kabbalah. Practical Kabbalah was not to be practiced. But it's interesting to see uh, Frank, who emerges out of the Shabbatian movement, actually uh, dismissing uh, Kabbalah as well. Uh, but moving on. Anyone familiar with the radical Shabbatian thought, however, can readily detect its continued presence beneath the new verbal facade. Thus, in place of the familiar Shabbatian three knots of the faith, we now have the good God, the big brother who stands before the Lord, and the virgin terms which are highly suggestive for all their earthy quality. This is that trinity we discussed. The klipah, the Torahs of Berea and Atzilut, the sparks of holiness, indeed all the conceptual usages that are basic to Shabbatian theological discourse have disappeared entirely to be replaced by a completely exoteric vocabulary. Even the figure of Shabbatai Zvi has greatly declined in importance the world of Shabbatianism itself, on the other hand, remains intact, or rather, has reached that ultimate stage of its development where it verges on self-annihilation. In the following pages, I will attempt to present an overall view of Frank's religious teachings to the extent that is that they can be fully reconstructed from his many sayings, and in a form that they apparently did not completely attain until after his conversion to Catholicism. Although they will occasionally seem to contradict one another, they are for the most part mutually consistent. The somberness of their world, or more accurately, world ruin. That's printed as one word here. I've never encountered that. That might be a Sholem uh, coinage, that contraction. It actually looks, really has the look and sound of an archaic Saxonism. I like it. Uh, world ruin did not, in fact, encourage a great deal of variety, although this did not prevent the believers, including even the traditionalists among them, in Prague from finding a dark fascination in its tidings, which Frank himself brutally summed up in a single brusque remark. Quote, it is one thing to worship God, and quite another to follow the path that I have taken. According to Frank, the cosmos, Tevel, or earthly world, Tevel Hagashmi, as it was called by the sectarians and Salonika, is not the creation of the good or living God. For if it were, it would be eternal, and man would be immortal. Whereas we can see from the presence of death in the world, this is not at all the case. So far this is perfectly Gnostic. To be sure, there are worlds which belong to the good God too, but these are hidden from all but the believers, 
In them are divine powers, one of whom is the King of Kings, who is also known as the Big Brother, and he who stands before the Lord. The evil power that created the cosmos and introduced death into the world, on the other hand, is connected with the feminine and is probably composed of three gods or rulers of the world, one of whom is the angel of death. In any case, it is these rulers, all of whom had been, all of whom have been incarnated on earth in human form, who block the path leading to the good God, who is unknown to men. For mystic knowledge of him has as yet been revealed to no one, nor has the holy soul, Nishmada, that emanates from him been in any creature, not even in Shabbatai Tzvi. Uh, this idea of the completely unknown good God is uh, sounding somewhat like the Gnostic Marcion. And I'm also reminded somewhat of Steiner's uh, Trinity of, Trinity is probably not a good word, but Lucifer, Ariamon, and Christ, all of whom have been or will be incarnated at some point. In the current eon, there are three rulers of the world, life, wealth, and death, the last of which must be replaced by wisdom. A task, however, that is not easily accomplished, for although wisdom is in some mysterious manner connected to the good God, the latter is still not able to reveal himself to mankind. Quote, for the world is in the thrall of laws that are no good, end quote. Hence, it is necessary to cast off the domination of these laws, which are the laws of death and harmful to mankind. To bring this about, the good God has sent messengers such as the patriarchs, quote, who dug wells, Moses, Jesus, and others into the world. Moses pointed out the true way, but it was found to be too difficult, whereupon he resorted to another religion and presented men with the law of Moses, whose commandments are injurious and useless. The law of the Lord, on the other hand, the spiritual Torah of the Shabbateans, is perfect. Only no man has yet been able to attain it. Finally, the good God sent Shabbatai Tzvi into the world, but he too was powerless to achieve anything, because he was unable to find the true way. Quote, but my desire is to lead you towards life. Nevertheless, the way to life is not easy, for it is the way of nihilism, it means to free oneself of all laws, conventions, and religions, to adopt every conceivable attitude and to reject it, and to follow one's leader step for step into the abyss. Baptism is a necessity, as Frank said prior to his conversion, because Christianity has paved the way for us. Thirty years afterwards, this same Christian, that's a Christian in quotes, observed, quote, this much I tell you, Christ, as you know, said that he had come to redeem the world from the hands of the devil, but I have come to redeem it from all the laws and customs that have ever existed. It is my task to annihilate all this so that the good God can reveal himself. Okay, so this is, this is a classic and extreme formulation of antinomianism. The annihilation of every religion and positive system of belief, this was the true way the believers were expected to follow. Concerning the redemptive powers of havoc and destruction, Frank's imagination knew no limits. Quote, Wherever Adam trod a city was built, 
that wherever I set foot, all will be destroyed, for I come into this world only to destroy and to annihilate. But what I build will last forever. End quote. I suppose the final negation is the negation of negation. Mankind is engaged in a war without quarter with the no-good laws that are in power. Quote, and I say to you, all who would be warriors must be without religion, which means that they must reach freedom under their own power and seize hold of the tree of life. End quote. No region of the human soul can remain untouched by this struggle. In order to ascend, one must first descend. Quote, no man can climb a mountain unless he has first ascended to its foot. Therefore, we must descend and be cast down to the bottom rung. But only then can we climb to the infinite. This is the mystic principle of Jacob's Ladder, which I have seen and which is shaped like a V. End quote. Again, quote, I did not come into this world to lift you up, but rather to cast you down to the bottom of the abyss. Further than this, it is impossible to descend nor can one ascend again by virtue of one's own strength. For only the Lord can raise one up from the depths by the power of his hand. End quote. The descent into the abyss requires not only the rejection of all religions and conventions, but also the commission of strange acts. And this in turn demands the voluntary abasement of one's own sense of self, so that libertinism and the achievement of that state of utter shamelessness which leads to a tikkun of the soul are one and the same thing. So my comment that he sounds a bit like Manson, if you know the details of uh, his story and his doctrines, so to speak. Um, and I did touch on, in another episode, his worship of the dual god Abraxas. It's actually sounding quite a bit like him. This is a very processed church as well, which probably does uh, get an influence uh, from Kabbalah via Jung. Jung actually did say some, some things somewhat like this as well. Quote, we are all now under the obligation to enter the abyss in which all laws and religions are annihilated. But the way is perilous for there are powers and gods these being none other than the three rulers of the world that do not let one pass. It is necessary to elude them and to continue onward. And this none of the ancients were able to do, neither Solomon, nor Jesus, nor even Shabbatai Tzvi, to accomplish this, that is, to overcome the opposing powers, which are the gods of other religions. It is imperative that one be, quote, perfectly silent, even deceitful. This is the mystic principle of the burden of silence, masa duma, i.e. of maintaining the great reserve that is becoming to the believer a new version of the original Shabbatian injunction against appearing as one really is. Indeed, this is the principle of the true way itself. Quote, just as a man who wishes to conquer a fortress does not do it by means of making a speech, but must go there himself with all his forces, so we too must go our way in silence. It is better to see than to speak, for the heart must not reveal what it knows to the mouth. Here there is no need for scholars, because here belongs the burden of silence. When I was baptized in Lvov, I said to you, so far so good. But from here on, a burden of silence. Muzzle your mouths. 
Our forefathers were always talking only what good did it do them and what did they accomplish. But we are under the burden of silence. Here we must be quiet and bear what is needful. That is why it is a burden. When a man goes from one place to another, he should hold his tongue. It is the same as with the man drawing a bow. The longer he can hold his breath, the further the arrow will fly. And so here too, the longer one holds his breath and keeps silent, the further the arrow will fly. this uh, injunction to silence it's it's not exactly unique in the history of esotericism uh, it's actually pretty standard um, you could go back to the Pythagoreans you know the shush hand gesture with the single finger lifted to the lips uh, that's Pythagorean in origin or supposedly is uh, and the Masons, of course, have a, a notorious uh, catechism, sort of, that involves the initiate pledging to undergo the torment of being disemboweled and so on uh, for revealing the contents of Masonic secrets and of course as we all know the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club naturally criminal organizations and conspiracies involve the same often unwritten doctrine in the Mafia there's nothing lower than a rat of course groups conspire in fact secrets are probably one of the defining things of an organization or an institution Silence is maintained, but sometimes secrets leak out. This is all normal. There's nothing even slightly weird about believing that the world functions via conspiracy. It indeed is one of the most normal things of history. We modern rationalists who believe not even in the de jure, but de facto transparency of institutions. We're the weird ones. Now, all that being said, some groups are obviously more esoteric than others, and the Shabbatians are maybe the most esoteric I've ever heard of in one sense that they seem to be esoteric for its own sake moving on with the text from the abyss if only the burden of silence is born holy knowledge will emerge the task then is to acquire knowledge quote and the passageway to knowledge is to combine with the nations footnote here the word das or das with two a's in the polish text does not mean religion hebrew dat das in the ashkenazic pronunciation as was believed by greats, but rather knowledge in the sense of gnosis, da'at, da'as, 
Da'at uh, is the uh, hidden eleventh uh, sephira. You'll find it placed between Hokma and Bina in depictions of the Tree of Life. This is the spelling used throughout in the Frankist commentary on the Enyakov in the phrase the Holy Gnosis, Hadas HaKedosha. The Hebrew text of the Red Epistle, on the other hand, does speak of the Holy Religion, Hadas HaKedosha. You probably could not hear the difference between the two. It's just 1a versus 2. Back to the text. Backing up a bit, the task then is to acquire knowledge, and the passageway to knowledge is to combine with the nations, but not, of course, to intermingle with them. He who reaches the destination will lead a life of anarchic liberty as a free man. Quote, the place that we are going to tolerates no laws, for all that comes from the side of death, whereas we are bound for life. The name of this place is Edom, or Esau. And the way to it, which must be followed by the light of knowledge, gnosis, and under the burden of silence through the depths of the abyss is called the way to Esau. Okay, so a couple things to say about Edom or Esau. I believe I mentioned this before. The Edomites were um, neighbors to the Hebrews in uh, Canaan slash Israel and were at some point conquered and assimilated by them and yet Edom um, remains the symbolic other in Judaism um, along with Esau. Uh, the Hebrew word Edom means red and the Hebrew Bible uh, relates that word to Esau so they're they're connected. Esau is of course the older son of Isaac and uh, he was said to red-haired and so that's uh, the, the name is appropriate interestingly um, red has a symbolic association with Judaism as well especially in the Middle Ages but Esau although he is um, of course born an Israelite he is the symbolically uh, a Gentile he is the one who was outsmarted by his more gifted brother Jacob, to whom he sold his birthright for a portion of pottage. So the Edomites are supposed to be descended from Esau. And so Edom or Esau is code for uh, the Christians or whoever the non-Jews are um, that the Jews are, are living amongst. And Esau being the brother of Jacob, of course, is very important because um, Jacob Frank uh, did believe himself to be not only Shabbatai reincarnated, but Jacob reincarnated, his namesake. Continuing, this was the road taken by Jacob the patriarch, the first Jacob, all of whose deeds prefigured those of the last Jacob, Jacob Frank. Esau, too, was foreshadowed by the Esau of the Bible, though only in a veiled way. Quote, Esau, the son of Jacob, was but the curtain that hangs before the entrance to the king's inner chambers, end quote. Herein lies the mystic principle of the wells dug by the patriarchs, as well as the mystic content of the story, Genesis 29, of how Jacob came to a well that had already been dug, rolled the stone from its mouth, and encountered Rachel and her father Laban. 
Another who found the passage to Esau was the sorcerer Balaam. Uh, now, Balaam, um, Balaam, I don't, I'm not sure the pronunciation on that, but uh, he is a pretty interesting biblical figure, one of a handful of characters like Job um, who are important, not nearly as important as, as Job, uh, obviously, who gets his own scripture, but um, who is not an Israelite. But Balaam is uh, considered a, uh, a sort of non, uh, a sort of Gentile prophet. He's uh, a sorcerer, a wise man, um, even though he's one of his famous stories is the story of uh, of riding on a donkey on the road and there's an angel of the Lord in the way and the donkey sees this angel which biblical angels remember are terrifying beings not ethereal you know sort of cherubs out of a renaissance painting or something and the donkey is trying to get out of the road and Balaam does not see and has no idea what's going on and he's trying to um, he's, he's abusing the animal and trying to get him to stay on the path but anyway there's there's a bunch of stories about um, Balaam and he's uh, supposed to have uh, influenced the Israelites to sin through sexual immorality and worshiping other gods those two things are always connected in the Bible it's very interesting um, but anyways Balaam is uh, you know kind of a powerful but negative figure in um, many Jewish texts moving on Esau belongs to the realm of the good God where the power of death is made not and it is also the dwelling place of the virgin she who is called Rachel in the biblical stories about Jacob and is elsewhere known as the beautiful maiden who has no eyes she it is who is the real Messiah who cannot contrary to traditional opinion be a man and to her all the king's weapons are surrendered for she is also the much sought after divine wisdom or Sophia who is destined to take death's place as one of the three rulers of the world uh, Freik inherited the Gnostic tradition um, and Kabbalistic tradition of course regarding the sacred feminine the divine aspect of God Sophia the Shekinah things like that um, and as he always did, interpreted or made it corporeal. And so, um, but what is also unique is making the female uh, literally the Messiah and are uh, prophesying an incarnation of this spirit. More than this, it was specifically said to be Frank's daughter, Eve, who it is quite possible even likely that he had sex with uh, incest was quite common among the Frankists continuing for the present however she is hidden in a castle and kept from the sight of all living creatures all the strange acts in comparison with which the strange fire offered before the Lord by Aaron's two sons Leviticus 10 was but a trifle are committed for the sole purpose of reaching her Again, she is the holy serpent who guards the garden, and he who asked what the serpent was doing in paradise was simply betraying his ignorance. As of yet, the place of Esau, the home of the virgin, 
and of true salvation has not been attained by anyone, but its hidden light will first be revealed to the believers, who will have the distinction of being its soldiers and fighting on its behalf. These are some of the main features of Frank's teaching. It is a veritable myth of religious nihilism, the work of a man who did not live at all in the world of rational argument and discussion, but inhabited a realm entirely made up of mythological entities. Indeed, to anyone familiar with the history of religion, it might seem far more likely that he was dealing here with an antinomian myth from the second century composed by such nihilistic Gnostics as Carpocrates and his followers than that all this was actually taught and believed by Polish Jews living on the eve of the French Revolution. Yeah, remember, this is the, the age of reason and the dawning of the Enlightenment. Anyway, among whom neither the master nor his disciples had the slightest inkling that they were engaged in resuscitating an ancient tradition. Not only the general train of thought, but even some of the symbols and terms are the same. And yet, none of this seems as surprising as it may appear to be at first glance when we reflect that no less than the Frankists, the Gnostics of antiquity, developed their thought within a biblical framework for all that they completely inverted the biblical values. They too believed that Esau and Balaam were worshippers of the good God. They too converted the serpent in the Garden of Eden into a symbol of gnosis, salvation, and the true divine wisdom that guided men to freedom from the evil rule of the demiurge by teaching them to disobey his laws and institutions, and they too held that the law of the good and alien God, which enjoined the commission of strange acts, was directly opposed to the law of Moses, which was largely the promulgation of the irascible creator. Frank's ultimate vision of the future was based upon the still unrevealed laws of the Torah of Atzalut, which he promised his disciples would take effect once they had, quote, come to Esau, that is, when the passage through the abyss with its unmitigated destruction and negation was finally accomplished. In seeking to elucidate this gospel of libertinism, I could do no better than to quote a passage from the excellent book on Gnosticism by the philosopher Hans Jonas, in which he discusses the development of a libertinist ethic among the nihilistically-minded pneumatics of the second century. Quote, the spiritualist morality of these pneumatics possessed a revolutionary character that did not stop short of actively implementing its beliefs. In this doctrine of immoralism, we are confronted both with a total and overt rejection of all traditional norms of behavior, with an exaggerated feeling of freedom that regards the license to do as it pleases as a proof of its own authenticity and as a favor bestowed upon it from above. The entire doctrine rests on the concept of an extra spirit as a privilege conferred upon a new type of human being, who from here on is no longer to be subject to the standards and obligations that have hitherto always been the rule. We might think of Nietzsche's Ubermensch here, the one who uh, reserves to itself the uh, creation of values. All right, that's that's a late coming uh, idea that we can now see in a long line of antinomian ideas. You know, it's just another antinomianism. Unlike the ordinary, purely psychic individual, the pneumatic is a free man, free from the demands of the law, 
and inasmuch as it implies a positive realization of this freedom, his uninhibited behavior is far from being a purely negative reaction. Such moral nihilism fully reveals the crisis of a world in transition by arbitrarily asserting its own complete freedom and pluming itself on its abandonment to the sacredness of sin. The self seeks to fill the vacuum created by the interregnum between two different and opposing periods of law. Yeah, again, Nietzsche was, was fully aware of this aspect and function of his philosophy. Anyway, especially characteristic of this overall mood of anarchy are its hostility towards all established conventions, its need to define itself in terms that are clearly exclusive of the great majority of the human race, and its desire to flout the authority of the divine powers, that is, of the world rulers who are the custodians of the old standards of morality, over and above the rejection of the past for its own sake, therefore, we are faced here with an additional motive, namely the desire to heap insult on its guardians and to revolt openly against them. Here we have a revolution without the slightest speculative dissemblance, and this is why the gospel of libertinism stands at the center of the Gnostic revolution in religious thought. No doubt, too, there was in addition to all this an element of pure daredeviltry, which the Gnostic could proudly point to as an indication of his reliance on his own spiritual nature. Indeed, in all periods of revolution, human beings have been fond of the intoxicating power of big words." End quote. Of course, Nietzsche does not rely on any kind of spiritualist um, grounding, so to speak. It's uh, a fully materialist, in a sense, philosophy. But then again, um, this sort of philosophy is prone to paradox and inversion. Um, the Frankists were bent on uh, turning everything spiritual in their own tradition to, uh, to flesh. Moving on, all of this is fully applicable to both radical Shabbatianism in general and to the Frankist movement in particular. The mentality that Jonas describes cannot possibly indeed assume a more radical form than Frank's nihilistic myth. It goes without saying, of course, that in a given age, myth and reality do not always coincide. And in the case of the Frankists, the former was undoubtedly the extremer of the two, even if Frank himself was not far from living up to it in actual practice. As emerged from the manuscript of the Chronicles of the Life of the Lord, which one of the Frankist families permitted Krauschar to use and which afterwards vanished. But in any event, the significant point is the fact that the myth should have been born at all and that a considerable number of ghetto Jews should have come to regard it as a way to quote political and spiritual liberation. To quote the words used by the educated Frankist Gabriel Porges in Prague to describe the movement's aims to his son after Frank himself was no longer alive. Clearly, for the Jew who saw in Frankism the solution to his personal problems and queries, the world of Judaism had been utterly dashed to pieces, although he himself may not have traveled the true way at all, may even in fact have continued to remain outwardly the most orthodox of observers. <laughs> Okay, 
so I want to finish off this section by talking about something I kind of teased uh, almost back near the beginning. It might have been the first episode. I don't even remember now. But this is a short story by the Argentine author Jorge Luis Borges, um, someone I haven't really dealt with yet on the Forest of Symbols, but he's pretty important to me personally and it's definitely relevant to this project. So I can say for sure we're going to be spending some more time on him in the future. Um, now Borges is usually dealt with under the rubric of postmodernism or metafiction in literature. Uh, and this is certainly appropriate. It's a genre or philosophy that he had a great deal of influence on. The French theorists in particular were uh, rather obsessed with him. He's referenced by Baudrillard and Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari, among others, particularly his uh, very short story on exactitude in science. It's more of a parable, really, generated the whole notion of the simulacra that Baudrillard uses. Um, so in a way, he develops these ideas in his fiction before any of these thinkers. Um, I would actually say that French postmodernism is footnotes to Borges. Uh, and, uh, you know, my hot take is I would actually go a little bit further and say that one can more quickly get an education in the problems of philosophy by reading through uh, the rather concise works of Borges, you can get almost all of his work in three volumes, the collected fictions, collected non-fictions, and collected poems, than you can in reading works of philosophy. But uh, Borges was very interested in theological ideas and heretical theological ideas and the occult, Gnosticism, Kabbalah, these things influenced him greatly. He's not as often mentioned uh, in, under this category, but I think that deserves some uh, exploration. And there's a story uh, in probably his best work, Ficciones, uh, called The Three Versions of Judas, which is relevant uh, not necessarily so much to this specific uh, episode of the Frankists, but to the general idea of redemption through sin, um, which he explicates in a very precise way. He invents a theologian, or what he calls <clears throat> a heresiarch, that is someone who founds a sect through heresy, which would definitely be a way of describing Shabbatite Zvi. Now, the story has a epigraph by T.E. Lawrence from The Seven Pillars of Wisdom that goes, there seemed a certainty in degradation. Or this is a supposed quotation. I uh, really ought to look and see if it's there in the book because you never can trust Borges. Sometimes he makes these things up. Uh, T.E. Lawrence, of course, being the British uh, 
adventurer and spy who lived among the Arabs and was part of the British Empire's campaign against the Ottoman Empire. This was very important in the history of Zionism, and uh, this was a component of uh, Christian Zionism and Jewish Messianism that we talked a little bit about in the Grasshoppers episode. Um, of course, the goal of all of Jewish history is the reestablishment of the Temple at Jerusalem and the Davidic Kingdom. And the thing that stood as a stumbling block to that for many, many years was the Ottoman Empire, who had occupied the Holy Land. <clears throat> of course, this is important to Christian um, eschatology as well for reasons I won't get into now but yeah there's this odd connection there with Lawrence and um, the the British Empire's retaking of the Holy Land and the mandate and the uh, Balfour Declaration and all these things that made the modern state of Israel possible uh, but anyway uh, the Borges story concerns this scholar by the name of Nils Runeberg. He's Swedish, and the reason for his Swedishness is an interesting question that I haven't really looked into, but uh, the point here is that he wrote these controversial books in the uh, early part of the 20th century on Christ and Judas, and he transforms his thesis <clears throat> in which he gives Judas uh, the pride of place in assisting Jesus to uh, accomplish his task on earth through the betrayal, which is uh, a sin but a necessary one. We'll read the first version of this. So he starts by arguing uh, how necessary Jesus' betrayal was. Quote, to suppose an error in the scriptures is intolerable, no less intolerable is to admit an accidental happening in the most precious event in world history. Ergo, Judas's betrayal was not accidental. It was a preordained fact which has its mysterious place in the economy of redemption. Runeberg continues, the word, when it was made flesh, passed from ubiquity to space, from eternity to history, from limitless satisfaction to change and death in order to correspond to such a sacrifice. It was necessary that one man, in representation of all men, make a sacrifice of condign nature. Judas Iscariot was that man. Judas, alone among the apostles, sensed the secret divinity and terrible intent of Jesus. The word had been lowered to mortal condition. Judas, a disciple of the word, could lower himself to become an informer, the worst crime in all infamy, and reside amidst the perpetual fires of hell. The lower order is a mirror of the higher the forms of earth correspond to forms of heaven. The spots on one's skin are a chart of the incorruptible constellations. Judas, in some way, reflects Jesus, hence the thirty pieces of silver and the kiss, hence the suicide, in order to merit reprobation even more. Thus Nils Runeberg elucidated the enigma of Judas. So he goes on refining uh, this thesis from sort of elevating the act in importance precisely because of its wickedness. There's no way the redemption could have been uh, achieved without it. Um, he goes on to elevate, actually, the character of Judas himself, 
quote, to attribute his crime to greed, as some have done, citing John 12, 6, is to resign oneself to the basest motive. Nils Rudenberg proposes the opposite motive, a hyperbolic and even unlimited asceticism. The ascetic, for the greater glory of God, vilifies and mortifies his flesh. Judas did the same with his spirit. He renounced honor, morality, peace, and the kingdom of heaven, just as others less heroically renounce pleasure. With terrible lucidity, he premeditated his sins. In adultery, there is usually tenderness and abnegation. In homicide, courage. In profanity and blasphemy, a certain satanic luster. Judas chose these sins untouched by any virtue. Violation of trust, John 12, 6, and betrayal. He acted with enormous humility. He believed himself unworthy of being good. So this is kind of a uh, typically Borgesian paradox here. The greatest example of Christian asceticism and humility and abnegation would be to sin uh, deliberately in order to accomplish the good in which uh, one would not even participate, you know, damning oneself. Ironically, the more damned Judas is in this instance, the more admirable uh, his character actually is, the greater his own sacrifice is for the accomplishment of good. Uh, and in fact, if one follows this logic, one uh, comes up with something even better, and he uh, winds up writing another book which revises this thesis entirely. And this is the third version of Judas, quote, The general argument is not complex, though the conclusion is monstrous. God, argues Nils Runeberg, lowered himself to become a man for the redemption of mankind. We may conjecture that his sacrifice was perfect, not invalidated or attenuated by any omission. To limit what he underwent to the agony of one afternoon on the cross is blasphemous. To maintain he was a man and incapable of sin involves a contradiction. The attributes of impeccabilitas and of humanitas are not compatible. Chemnitz admits that the Redeemer could feel fatigue, cold, embarrassment, hunger, and thirst. We may also admit that he could sin and go astray. The famous text, quote, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 52, verse 2 through 3. Um, just as an aside, you might want to go back uh, to the earlier episodes um, where I talk about the suffering savior uh passages of Isaiah. This is exactly where this is pulled from. Uh, the scripture, it's mentioned by Sholem. It's an important text for shaping the Jewish conception of the Messiah and equally important for uh, the Christian uh, textual evidence that Jesus was in fact uh, the Messiah. So it's an extremely important uh, passage uh, in the, um, the messianic tradition and the development of the messianic idea. Anyway, back to Borges, uh, the script passage, quote, is for many a future vision of the Savior at the moment of his death. For others, for example, for Hans Lawson Martinson, 
a refutation of the beauty which vulgar opinion attributes to Christ. For Runeberg, the punctual prophecy, not a moment, but of the whole atrocious future in time and eternity of the word made flesh. God made himself totally a man, but a man to the point of infamy, a man to the point of reprobation and the abyss to save us. He could have chosen any of the destinies which make up the complex web of history. He could have been Alexander, or Pythagoras, or Rurik, or Jesus. He chose the vilest destiny of all. He was Judas. End quote. So he winds up at this heresy that God, the Messiah, the Savior, was not even Jesus, but the betrayer of Jesus, Judas. You may as well have said he was Shabbatite Zvi or Jacob Frank, who was someone else who intentionally went to the abyss. Thank you for listening. Next time we finish the essay.